This evening I would like to raise up for our contemplation a verse from the Dhammapada, verse 290, which says, It is wisdom that leads to letting go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a happiness that is greater. And the Buddha is wanting us to pay attention to the fact that there is relative happiness and there is the kind of happiness that comes with just getting what we want in some situation uh, quick gratification but there is a higher happiness and the happiness which is greater and the happiness which is greater as we have been chanting about in the the Dhammachaka Sutta this evening, the happiness which comes with understanding the reality of wanting and not being driven by it. So there's the lower level or casual happiness, which is you know, gratification of some wanting, and then there's the higher happiness, which is associated with understanding, seeing clearly. And, and there's work to do. The, this, is, this is the work that we're encouraged to do. If we don't do the work, well, all we have access to is that rather transient kind of happiness, or mediocre level of happiness, which might be okay for a while, but as life goes by, it just gets less and less satisfying and, and regrettably people tend to become more and more disappointed generally speaking if they're not doing the work of cultivating their hearts so there's nothing wrong with this everyday level of happiness and like you, know, you go out for a walk and you remember that you wanted to mention something to somebody and, and you forgot to tell them and so no problem, you just pull out the phone and ring them up and tell them and, you know, job done that's, that's, that's a kind of happiness and, however if, if it turns out we're walking in a place in the countryside where there's no uh, connection, there's no internet and there's no don't have any bars on your phone and, and feel frustrated and disappointed and unhappy. I really want to have a connection. I really want to talk to this person and can't do it because you haven't got a connection. 
keep walking, keep walking, and then you, oh, you find a connection. So, oh, I've got two bars, oh, I've got three bars. That kind of happiness, that gratification of desire is, is not reliable from the perspective of awakened awareness that the Buddha taught. That's, there's much more to life than that. And, and all those years he put into teaching was so that we could be inspired, so that we could feel encouraged to cultivate a, <clears throat> the higher level of happiness and, and not settle for kind of mediocrity. There was something that our teacher, Tanajan Shah, said which relates to this and when he had been to visit the West and, and gone back to Thailand and uh, as was reported to me by a Thai man that I knew at the time, he, uh, he said how Ajahn Shah commented that with the Sangha coming to live in the West he was a bit concerned that they wouldn't develop and there's lots that is supportive and people are interested. However, the thing that he commented on that he was concerned about was that the Sangha are never going to go without anything. And he used this expression, ought glan, tamai ought, tamai glan, jamai jalun. This expression, ought glan, means going without, and there's a, a connotation of endurance. And the point Ajahn Chah was making was that, that the work of realizing higher happiness involves letting go of the initial level of happiness or the lower level of happiness, the casual happiness. And if we don't have to ever experience going without, then as far as he was concerned, there's, there's no development. Development is only possible when we see, when we experience letting go of the initial everyday common and garden variety happiness that comes with getting what we want. So somehow we need to learn how to not get what we want and still be okay. And the training involved in this is, is not always easy, as all of us here would know. That it involves a lot, of, uh, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of patience, a lot of restraint. There's another verse in the Dhammapada, verse 248, which says, whoever is intent on goodness should know this, a lack of self-restraint is disastrous. Do not allow greed and misconduct to prolong your misery. So I realise that this might sound like or appear as if I'm painting a, a not particularly attractive picture of this path of practice and uh, having to go without and, and having to cultivate self-restraint and, and doesn't necessarily sound very attractive. However, if we look at our predicament, we look at the world we live in, is it really beautiful? Is this world really beautiful? Is the way that we conduct ourselves really beautiful? We go without just you know, three bars in our phone and we can get really upset. Are we able to endure going without getting what we want, losing the familiar without being defined by our reaction? Is that possible? And, and if it's not, 
what does that say about where we're at? I mean, so the Buddha actually didn't mince his words with a lot of these teachings in the Dhammapada are really hard hitting, really, they're really straight talking and he wants us to realise where we're at and from that perspective be inspired to do something about it. If we don't really accept where we're at, then we're not really in a position to do anything about it. We need to really be conscious, we need to really register. This is where my life's at. Like with the planet that we're living on, look what we've done to it. Look, tragically trashed the planet we live on in pursuit of casual happiness. You know, cheap energy and, and following greed. So this, from the perspective of our teachers, is something that we need to really own up to. We, need to, we can't move on. We can't do anything about our predicament if we don't really own where we're at. Sometimes we approach this path of practice overly idealistic and have ideas of becoming compassionate, becoming wise and making the world more beautiful and and all of that can be inspiring, uplifting, but is it realistic? Actually, when we go without getting what we want, do we have the strength? Have we built the strength? Have we built the foundation? Have we cultivated our potential in a way whereby we can actually endure the difficulty of going without what we want and be able to investigate and be able to really learn? It's like I was talking recently with our workmaster here who pointed out that the, the cast iron guttering on our dumber hall here is going rusty and it's in quite a poor state of repair actually and and he was talking about repainting it and um, but doesn't have much experience in working with cast iron guttering and so I made a point of saying hey, before we put new paint on it we've got to address the state of the, the fact that the cast iron is rusty and we've got to um, wire brush it down, sand it down and then depending on the paint that we use, maybe put on primer or undercoat, whatever's needed. And if we want a good finish, we want something that's going to be effective and protect the cast iron guttering on our dumber hall, then we have to do the work of acknowledging this is where we're at. It's rusty. And, and so in our spiritual practice, like we've just been sitting meditation, where are we at with our minds? How much energy do we have for practice? How much patience and kindness do we have? Like when the mind wanders, do we get all judgmental of ourselves or have we learnt the benefit of patience and gentleness and kindness? So in this life there is, obviously, there are certain things that we need. We need a certain amount of food and clothing, shelter, medicine. We need a certain amount of this stuff. However, it is very obvious that we easily fall prey to wanting more than we actually need. We don't generally easily, readily settle for the right amount. We easily fall into the habit of, of wanting more and, and herein lies the cause for the tragedy of the condition of the planet that we live in, what we've done to the environment, what we've done to the atmosphere, what we've done to the oceans. And the unawareness 
is the cause. It's not bad people, it's, it's unawareness, not knowing, not seeing. So this teaching of learning to go without, we don't want to become overly idealistic about that and, and set up unreasonable goals. And there is an there's a example in the scriptures where the Buddha realized there was this man in a particular village who the Buddha perceived him to be ready. He was ready to understand the teachings. And, and so he made the point of traveling to this village to give the teachings to this fellow so that he'd have the benefit of understanding him. However, when he got to the village, he discovered that this, this fellow was, uh, hadn't eaten and was hungry. And so before the Buddha gave him the teachings, he, he made sure that the other villagers got him a meal and, and sorted out some food for him so he wasn't hungry anymore. In other words, there are basic physical and emotional uh, needs that we have, which it's wise to meet, so as to then be able to look more deeply, look more carefully at how can we rise above this uh, superficial level of seeking happiness through gratification and move in the direction of the happiness that the Buddha was talking about, the higher level of happiness. So the question, or one question that arises in my mind about this is, how can we steer ourselves in a useful direction? We all have tendencies to become overly idealistic or overly dramatic about these things. How do we know the right amount? How can we know the right amount of what is needed? How can we guide ourselves indulging in following wanting and doesn't produce real benefits denying, repressing that's not bad just like again we're enchanting the the Dhamma Chaka Bhavatana Sutta just now the Buddha talks about the extreme of indulgence and the extreme of denial and then he points out then there's the middle way the middle way this cultivated awareness that doesn't get lost in indulgence or denial in these heedless habits that we've been conditioned to. We've been conditioned in these ways. and We have these habits. Just following them, that's not it. Just denying them, that's not it. The Buddha said there is this alternative. And, and to part of it, it means acknowledging the way these desires are conditioned. How they can look really important. Yeah. Like if, you, if you've got a habit of smoking cigarettes, which thankfully these days is not so common, but I can remember when I was a, a young monk, I was hooked on smoking cigarettes. And I think, I want a cigarette. I've got to have a cigarette. I can't go without a cigarette. It's insane. It's like, I can't go without a cigarette. But that's the feeling when, you, when you're hooked on something. You feel, I can't go without it. That's when we're really caught up in wanting. But how do we undo that in a skillful way? Just getting brutal, just getting judgmental, shaming ourselves. I'm sure we've all had more than enough shaming ourselves already and, or having others shame us. How can we skillfully look into what's really going on and see how we get persuaded by our conditioned preferences? 
when the America's yacht race, the American World Cup yacht race is on, and I, I really want New Zealand to win. I don't want the Italians to win. I want, <laughs> I want, I want New Zealand to win. Why do I want New Zealand to win? I, I wasn't born 69 and some months ago wanting New Zealand to win the America's yacht race. I was somehow conditioned. I learned it's a conditioned preference, it's a conditioned desire. And so part of this practice is really acknowledging you know, these strong preferences that we have. That, that, that programmed, we learned them. And if we learn them, then we can unlearn them. So this question, how can we skillfully inspire ourselves, not with dramatic, overly idealistic ambitions, not with unpleasant, hurtful shaming, but skillfully inspire ourselves to be willing to go without this shallow, superficial level of casual happiness. How do we do that? How can we do that? We're, obviously, we're capable. Human beings are very capable of doing it. You, you know, people go without all sorts of things. You see that people will go without the comfort of sleeping in in the morning just so they can go to the gym and work out in the gym so they, they look great. Or maybe you know, people will, will go without food because they think looking skinny is cool. And, you know, people are willing to go without stuff. But is it a going without that's inspired by wisdom? Again, we need to look very carefully at this and, and be, I think, I would suggest be careful about how honest we're being. Really taking care to be honest and owning up. What is it that I'm really, where is it, how is it that I'm seeking happiness? Now, in the beginning, of course, we have faith that the, what the Buddha was talking about is true, that there is a high level of happiness. There is a possibility of realizing wisdom that is unshakable, compassion that is boundless. We have faith that that's possible. And sometimes we underestimate the power of faith, the power of trust. But that's really to our misfortune. Just because faith is not the same thing as knowledge doesn't mean to say that it's insignificant. Faith and trust are very similar. And if we don't have trust, then we're really disadvantaged. Like every time you go to sit in a chair, we trust that it's going to hold us. We don't get down the floor and look under the chair and see, is this chair safe to sit on? And you know, We trust it's going to hold us. Driving a car down the road and you, you see a car coming along on the on the right-hand side of the road and you're driving on the left-hand side of the road and you don't really pay much attention. You just keep driving because you assume that that car is going to stay on their side of the road. You trust that they're going to stay on their side of the road. But you don't know. But we trust it so most of the time. So trust in actuality, trust that there have been awakened beings who have taught us that there is a higher level of happiness and in pursuit of this high level of happiness, it involves a willingness to let go of a lesser quality of happiness. So what is it that makes this work so challenging? If we have faith, we have at least a conventional, conceptual understanding of the validity 
of this path of practice, why do we keep getting tri- tripped up? Well, well, if you look at the the force of me and my way, this I want. For children, it's perfectly understandable. I want this, I don't want that. It's, we understand and we can tolerate children stamping their feet and, and screaming. And, however, as we grow up, we really do need to really do need to grow up and recognize that our relationship to wanting has to change. If we think that we're always entitled to get what we want when we want, we're always entitled to have a three, at least three bars on our smartphone internet connection. What's wrong? Why hasn't the service provider put a mast up on this hill that I'm walking across and get indignant? Or why haven't the scientists figured out a, a, a remedy for this pandemic yet and getting indignant? And, and what is that indignation? Is that helpful? Is it beautiful? Is it necessary? Where does it come from? Well, if we look at it, it comes from <coughs> this me and my way. And it's a very famous song that probably most of you are familiar with called My Way that, that Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley and various other people have sung. And if I understand correctly, it was a rewording of originally a French tune that made famous. And, and look how many people like that song. Look how long that song was on top of the charts. My way is very convincing. Look at the advertising industry really trying to persuade us to want more, to seek happiness through casual gratification. So this force is very strong and we need to factor that in. That, well, no wonder it's difficult. There's, we've got this, this wind blowing against us. We're, we're, we're sailing into the wind here and it's really, really difficult. And so it is with the, you know, the teachings that the Buddha gave, a willingness to go against the current. This radically contradicts the way of the world. And it's one reason why this aspect of the Buddha's teachings is never really going to, probably never really going to be that popular. Most people will turn away from it. They don't want to know that you, we have to go against our conditioned impulses to seek gratification if we want to realize a higher level of happiness. So the way we do that, well, one way we do that, one, one wise way of going about that is to heed the teachings from those who've walked the path ahead of us, our elders, the wise elders, and to listen to their encouragement, to observe their example, to benefit from their hard practice and, and be inspired, have our faith nourished by their example. And one of the things that they continually point out is the need to look into this relationship we have to me and my way. I've spoken often before about this expression of me, this expression of self as being like 
a rainbow that looks like a solid substantial thing and we can be impressed by it, we can be delighted by it. However, grasping at rainbows, that's a disaster. And so it is with grasping at me and my way. The sense of self, we weren't born with a sense of self. It took several years before a sense of me, a sense of individuality, was established. Probably roughly seven years before this sense of differentiation between the individual and the world they're living in was established. And yet, from that point onwards, we, generally speaking, grow increasingly attached and identified with this sense of self. And if we don't have the teachings from our wise elders to encourage us to question, to carefully inquire into this, this, this phantom of selfhood, yes, it looks real and substantial, but where is the reality? You know, like if you look into the Buddhist teaching on the Anattalakana Sutta, the discourse on the, the not self characteristic. If you look into that sutta, the Buddha's discussing how form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, formations are not self, consciousness is not self. And we're encouraged to develop our faculties to inquire into this, not just to believe it but to heed these teachings and develop our faculties so as to be able to study, so as to be able to read. Just as we learn to read a book, we learn our ABC, and then eventually we can read books, and, and that's very useful. We can read instruction manuals, we can read recipe books, and we can read Dhamma books, and, and gain a huge amount of benefit. And great pity if we can't read... Well, likewise, it's a great pity if we can't read our own hearts, if we don't have the faculties developed enough to be able to read what's really going on. How do we, how do we approach our addiction to superficial happiness? How do we develop gratitude? How do we really develop moralising about, oh, I should be grateful, I should, with generosity, I should be more generous... Uh, shaming ourselves and trying to shame ourselves into it, that's, that's a very blunt instrument. Um, how can we realistically steward our attention in a helpful direction so that we are willing to let go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a happiness which is greater? Well, again, the, heeding the words of our teachers and uh, encouraged to develop our faculties, and as again, as I've spoken about many times before, it seems to me that in our spiritual toolkit, there are, there are four primary tools that we need to develop skill in applying. And the first one is integrity. The second one is mindfulness. The third one is skillful restraint. And the fourth one is wise reflection. These four tools... Uh, can form an essential part of our spiritual toolkit. And depending on how committed one is to developing this spiritual craft, uh, the toolkit might be very well equipped, but without these four, really, really disadvantaged, really limited in trying to make any sort of progress. So, integrity, 
reflecting on the encouragement from the Buddha and uh, keeping moral precepts, seeing the consequences of where we compromise integrity and lose self-respect. Not just believing that it's a good idea, but it's good to, if we have confidence, encourage confidence and faith that it's a good idea. However, it's also important to understand why it's a good idea, to see what is the effect of dishonesty. And we see how we lose self-confidence, we lose self-respect, we lose strength. And the opposite, that where we make an effort to develop impeccability, really restrain our effort of speech so as to be honest and, and see how that grows self-confidence and a certain sort of strength. Reflect on how when we look at the Buddha image, you see the Buddha image sitting on a lotus. Uh, traditionally, and I think in, in all Buddhist cultures, uh, you see the the Buddha image, which is the awakened awareness, is seated or sometimes standing on a lotus, and the lotus symbolizes integrity, or that which is beautiful. A lotus flower, this beautiful form, emerges out of the swamp, the dirt of the swamp. If you've ever lived in Asia, and you see the, these filthy puddles on the side of the road, and then these stunningly beautiful, pristine lotuses grow up out of that and symbolizing the heart the awareness that is imbued with integrity it forms a firm foundation on which our aspirations for liberation need to be seated without that firm foundation we're really disadvantaged without mindfulness we're really disadvantaged and mindfulness again is not something just to believe in, but we can exercise it. And we're given a meditation object and encouraged to use this meditation object to develop not just concentration skills, which is concentration, steadiness, collectedness, that's, that's definitely helpful, but watchfulness, alertness, attention, mindfulness. Every time the mind wanders... And then we remember, it comes back, and that's increasing mindfulness. The effort to remember bears results. That effort to remember, that effort to begin again, without criticism, without judgment, not falling to habit of, oh, I forgot again, oh, I got lost again, oh, I'm hopeless. That's, that's a loss of mindfulness. Every time we remember, we can appreciate this is the cultivation of mindfulness. This sharpening, honing down, becoming skilled in applying this spiritual skill, this tool in our, in our toolkit. And there's an image that the Buddha gave of like the, the gatekeeper in a gate in a city wall and noticing who comes in and who goes out. This is the function of mindfulness. And without mindfulness, then we're really disadvantaged. Skillful restraint, not heedless blind moralizing of I've got to restrain my speech and stop saying unkind things to people an embodied awareness of the pressure that builds up around I want to tell somebody such and such 
Are we able to create some space around that? Can we soften our bodies? Can we have a sense of expanded awareness to feel that impulse of, I want to say something to somebody, and then carefully inhibit it? We're not just up in our heads idealizing about how we should be. That's not skillful restraint. That kind of restraint is likely to end up with a backlash. We start blasting people because we were just probably just repressing. So skillful restraint is a whole body-mind exercise requiring mindfulness, requiring strength and faith. And then also being willing to practice with small moments, not being overly ambitious. Just small things like, I could say this to that person, but can I choose to not say it? I know I could say it, but can I choose to not say it? But I really want to say it. And then to feel that, but I really want to say it. Oh, it doesn't really matter, I'll just say it here. No, well, why don't we just experiment with not saying it? Or taking extra food, I mean, going through the arms round line. and you know, I could take another piece of toast or another piece of fruit. But can I choose to not take another piece? Not for some overly idealistic, moralistic reason. Fully intentionally choosing to exercise this quality of skillful restraint, inhibiting compulsive conditioned reactivity. And if we can't, well then, to be honest about the fact that we're just driven by our conditioned preferences. What we were taught, what we are taught as children, what we are taught as teenagers, what we've been conditioned by advertising, we're driven by that if we don't cultivate this ability to skillfully inhibit reactivity. So if we have these three qualities of integrity, which leads to self-respect and a certain sort of strength, mindfulness, which is another sort of strength, and then the strength that comes from skillful restraint, and we combine this then with wise reflection, then we're much better equipped to do something about addressing this misperception of me and my way. This, this, that rainbow, yeah, it looks like that. But grasping at rainbows, that's crazy. And grasping at this me and my way, trying to find identity in this conditioned sense of self, is also crazy. It wasn't always like that. These days, I think, probably, in our society, it's, it's never been so extreme. I can remember somewhere, I think, around about maybe the mid to late 80s, 1980s, I, I hadn't seen television, much television, for many years. And, and I had the opportunity to watch some television. I, I noticed how, particularly the news broadcasters, I said, this is the news. I am John Smith. And I thought, what's John Smith got to do with the news? Has something happened to John Smith? No, he was just introducing himself. His personality now sudden, suddenly became important enough to begin the news with. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be the newsreader would come on the television and just read the news. Somewhere in there, around that period of the 70s and 80s, the importance of me and my way, the importance of personality, the importance of 
of ego grew dramatically. And now it's normalized. What we're talking about here is, is this a secure identity, personality, this conditioned sense of self? It wasn't always there. It's not stable. It's not going to be there. As we lose our memory, what happens to our sense of self? As we start to lose our physical ability, what happens to our sense of self? So the Buddha and the great teachers wanted us to look very carefully into this. Looking carefully means developing these spiritual potentials that we have, uh, most essentially integrity, mindfulness, skillful restraint, and wise reflection, so that when we're faced with one of life's real questions, we're equipped to deal with it. We're interested in a happiness which is greater. We don't want to settle for a mediocre existence. And this is one way of approaching it. And it doesn't have to be big life events, small things that occur to us. Like I mentioned earlier about cultivating generosity. I can recall an incident, this was many years ago when I was living, living in the Devon Bihar and, and there was a friend and supporter of the monastery who was driving up to Chitthurst Monastery and, and I don't remember the details exactly, maybe he asked, oh is there anything you want me to take up to Chitthurst Monastery and the thought occurred to me, oh my friend Kitty Saro is up in Chitthurst Monastery and I hear he's very unwell and I've just been given this, this really nice jar of, of honey uh, maybe it was you know, uh, local honey, particularly good quality honey. I, I don't get it very often, and maybe he doesn't get it. And maybe I could send this jar of honey up with the driver to Kitty Sarah. And but then the thought came: Oh no, I don't want to give it. He he didn't know I had this impulse to give it to him anyway, and I don't want to give it to him. And but I should give it to him. And then there's this this battle going on in my heart, in my mind, in my body of should I give it? Should I not give it? And so one way or another, I overrode my impulse to be greedy and, and just gave it to the driver said, please take this and give this to Kitty Sarah. And, and that was that. But then, quite a long time later, or even now, when I think about that, when I stop and look into that, I learned, oh, I feel good. And that good feeling, where does that degree of happiness come from? There would have been a, a lesser level of happiness if I had kept the jar of happiness, from my, kept, kept the jar of honey for myself, and you know, according to our Vinaya rules, I could have had it for seven days, but probably I would have eaten it within seven days. And so, four or five or six, or the most seven days of of the happiness of eating this jar of honey, and then it would be gone. But having given it away, having encouraged, inspired myself to override the greedy impulse and to give it as a gift to Kitty Saro. Here I am all these years later and I still feel good about that. And I can read that. This is, again, this is, this is why it's so important that we do the work, that we're willing to do the work of developing these faculties. Self-respect that comes from a life of integrity. Mindfulness which comes from putting in the right effort at the right time in the right way. Self-restraint, recognising the conditioned tendencies and wise reflection so we can read. There's the cause, 
there's the effect. If we don't understand it, then we can't read our own hearts, we can't read our own minds. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Hanamayang Dhamma Gathaya